0: It's June the 10th, 2022. This is the Room Now Podcast. The Room Now Podcast is brought to you by me, Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This is our recap of ULAR 2022, the 10 best abstracts as chosen by me, as chosen by the Room Now faculty who informed me. I followed their coverage. You should have as well. I've got to say our... Um, 10 faculty members, half at home, half at the meeting in Copenhagen. They were all over it. At one point, um, towards the middle or end of the meeting, I think we had six out of our 10 faculty in the top 10 in social media. Uh, And we were led by uh, Richard Conway um, from Ireland, who did a fabulous job, along with the other faculty members. Kudos to them in their grand coverage of ULAR 2022. The criteria for making this top 10 list is sort of based on um, the talk, the buzz, what was on social media, also what has potential for impact, meaning it's water cooler talk uh, or talk between colleagues. Um, New stuff that has potential or innovation also makes the list. So here we go, my top 10. Let's begin with a shocking statistic about a six-fold higher risk of mortality in RA patients who have depression. This comes from the DanBio Registry, gigantic registry. They looked at 11,000 patients and did a subset analysis of those who were prescribed a first-time antidepressant. So they had to have depression that met ICD-10 codes, and they had to have had a antidepressant. So it would have been depression bad enough to get treatment for. Well, when you looked at what happened to these patients over time, again, incredibly large cohort, the, the, the data shocking, the odds ratio of mortality was greater than six. Um, and again, maybe overall about 10% of patients in this cohort had received an antidepressant. This is really, and this wasn't antidepressants being used, let's say, like duloxetine for fibromyalgia and pain and pain from other other things. No, again, it was confirmed, not just by having the antidepressant, but also by the ICD-10 code. So this is shocking data. And I think it says something about what we don't do. What we don't do is ask about depression. There was an underlying theme of depression, residual pain, fatigue, um, comorbidity, multimorbidity. A lot of this stuff really impacts the outcomes. And we do ask about comorbidities. We just don't ask about depression. I would strongly urge every rheumatologist to include this in their questionnaire or to ask about depression and get serious about this because it will ruin your therapeutic responses. These people will have worse outcomes. Death is maybe the worst of the worst, so this should be your reason to do so. There was a lot of buzz about the new ULAR 22, 2022 updated recommendations for the management of rheumatoid arthritis. This was um, a big presentation by Dr. Joseph Smolin. Um, he reviewed the new updated recommendations and put them in perspective to the 2019 which in and of themselves were sort of new and interesting, there really weren't much changes, things you would imagine. Methotrexate first, treat the target being an important thing, shared decision-making. Um, but there were two really, I think, distinguishing features of these guidelines that got a lot of discussion. One was steroids. They went out of their way to say, ACR guidelines say that you should not go on steroids or minimize steroids or avoid steroids at all cost. And these guidelines say not so much, meaning bridge steroids are okay. And what they did was they said oh, it's okay to use steroids, you know, low-dose steroids. Their research showed that of all the people who go on bridge steroids, 80% or more have stopped within a year, and they wanted to foster that belief. So the past guidelines said something like use them and then taper. Now they say taper and discontinue. So as to say, it should come with an expiration date. Um, One of my colleagues, Catherine Dow, did a little Twitter poll on this. What do you believe? Do you believe in the ACR way of avoiding steroids or the ULAR way of encouraging steroids? The crowd on Twitter voted in favor of this ULAR recommendation. I'm not surprised. We all love steroids, do we not? But they are dangerous, as you know. So coming with an expiration date makes a lot of sense. The next big thing was how to handle the... Um, the oral surveillance warnings on JAK inhibitors in RA. So in light of those concerns, their um, task force basically said you shouldn't consider those first. You should consider them only after you've considered the patient's risk factors for cardiovascular disease and for malignancy. The malignancy doesn't quite belong, but it's right now it's in their draft. We'll see if it stays, um, and and that's what you should be doing if you're going to. So you have to go through the checklist here. I think that's that's really important. So those two things, and then lastly, what it says when you once you failed a drug, you can switch from TNF to TNF. You can switch from IL six to IL six. You can switch. Wait, they don't have any data about jack-to-jack. There's no research or good data on that just yet. But obviously switching at least once is not unreasonable according to these guidelines. In the old 2019 guidelines, they said you should stop the more expensive therapy first, the expensive biologic as opposed to methotrexate, if someone wanted to wean. That's in contrast to ACR that says you should stop methotrexate first, the cheapest drug, and the rationale for this I won't get into. I've discussed that in the past. Now they've come back and said um, you can stop whatever you want, meaning you, you and the patient share decision-making. So that's basically it. And, of course, you do have to worry about VTE risk with the JAK inhibitors. That's another set of risk factors, is it not? Prior VTE, age, obesity, steroid use, and, above all, um, uh, inflammation are main drivers of VTE risk. So I want to get into steroids because the next big report was the Gloria study presented by Dr. Martin Boers. Um, that was abstract OPO263. And he presented the results of his two-year pragmatic double-blind placebo-controlled trial of low-dose prednisone, prednisolone, 5 milligrams a day, versus placebo in older RA patients over the age of 65. And basically, at the end of two years, he showed that there was a clinical benefit. Early on, there was a clinical benefit. So I was to say maybe a little bit of a window opportunity. and, and that, But in the end, there was a clinical benefit. But these people going in had a dash 28 score, I think 4-point-something, 4.3 and the, at the end, the difference was minus 0.32. In, in an ideal patient, it might be minus 0.67. So the magnitude of benefit, is it worth it? Um, there was also an x-ray benefit, minus 1.7 units. That's sharp Vanderheide units on a scale of 0 to 440. But again, that's those are the kind of numbers you see changing these days in, in recent trials. So there was a clinical benefit. There was an x-ray benefit. It was a little bit. But was it worth it because there was a 24% increased risk of harm, meaning more serious adverse events, mainly, um, not serious adverse events, adverse events. but with most of the adverse events being minor infections. So is that worth it? There were a few more fractures in the steroid group versus non-steroid group. So this could have gone a lot of different ways. It turns out that it's in the eye of the beholder. If you love steroids, you love this data. If you hate steroids, you love this data. So it's got a little something for everybody. Look at the study when it comes out. It'd be really interesting to see what it looks like when it gets put into print in publication. So again, a large study with um, a significant message. The other large study that got a lot of play we talked about already was the 1133 oral surveillance study. That is still getting a lot of play. Uh, we talked about this incessantly at ACR 2021. Now here we are, um, some nine months later, we're still talking about it. There were four big abstracts from this, um, and this is my 11:33 rehashed segment. Um, Maya Book uh, Poster 0237. Uh, Christina Charles Shulman. Um, oops, I forgot down to write down her poster number. Um, George Capuzas, poster number 0519, and John Giles, poster 0520, they basically talked to what are the risk factors for those who got these cardiovascular and malignancy events. Number one, it was uh, having cardiovascular risk factors, meaning if you had a prior MI and you, know, you did a cardiovascular risk assessment and it was greater than 20%, you were at greater risk for future MACE events, major adverse cardiovascular events, and also for malignancies. And that in general, that wasn't, didn't seem to be disease activity related, but I, well, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, and then the next big thing, I guess, really was disease activity. And it, we do know disease activity drives VTE risk. That's been well published. And that showed up in this study, both in people who received the TNF inhibitor and in people who received the JAK inhibitor. But did disease activity drive risk for MACE events in cancer? Cancer, uh-uh. Uh, mace a little bit, and mainly with the JAK inhibitors. So does that tell us much? Again, I think we'll go back to what John Giles told me, um, was there three questions you got to ask your patients before they get on a jack inhibitor. Have you had an MI? Do you have cardiovascular risk factors? And have you had a prior VTE? The answer to that is yes, then you might want to go on to another option before you consider a jack inhibitor, any of the JAK inhibitors. And this probably applies to not just rheumatologists, but to dermatologists and anyone else who is going to be using um, selective JAK inhibition. The next big report was presented by uh, Georg Schett, abstract OP0279 CAR T-cells. In lupus, this was wild this was i mean i think I think there was probably a standing ovation i wasn 't there, but I heard a lot of buzz about this now Car T cells, as you know, is like future Star Wars therapy where you know you, you basically do leukapheresis, to get the patient 's own T cells you engineer them to generate. B-cell specific responses. They're very helpful in cancer. Now they're using them in five patients with lupus. They all had really severe lupus. They all had failed hydroxychloroquine, mycophenolate, cytoxin, IVIG, rituximab, belimumab, and the kitchen sink. And they went on to receive this. When they receive this, they stop all their DMART therapy. Um, they, after they give them the CAR T-cell infusion, they stopped their steroids, and guess what? These people got right pretty, fa- pretty quick, pretty fast. They got really uh, well-controlled, meaning they went in at the time of treatment with sle- uh, sleet-eye scores of 8 to 16, which is quite high, and they all went to 0 to 2. Their B-cell numbers went to 0, um, and they stayed down for more than six months, and a few of them started to rise there- up thereafter. Again, this was dramatic, um, It's uncontrolled. It's selective reporting. Um, We don't know if this would pan out in a large control trial of some sort, Um, but this is dramatic and certainly got a lot of buzz at the meeting. Unfortunately, this kind of therapy is big-time expensive, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. The next big report, and I'm going to say pair of reports, had to do with prevention, meaning studies in people with preclinical RA. You've heard me talk about the ARIA study before. This gets another replay here at ULAR. At ACR, we talked about the six-month data, 100 patients who were randomized to either uh, abatacept or placebo, and, um, and what happened? Did they develop RA or not? And obviously, the abatacept patients did better. Now, uh, here at ULAR, we're looking at another 12 months off of both therapies, so a total of an 18-month outcome, and still... The abatacep-treated patients in the first six months were not developing RA, and and it was preventing disease. So if you look at the lines, they never caught up to each other. Um, In the end, I think at 18 months, there was about 57% of the people on placebo developed RA, whereas only 38% on abatacep initially treated developed RA. Um, The number needed to treat here is eight. That's not bad. There are a lot of drugs on the market where you have to treat eight to get one better. Um, that would include etanercept in treating psoriasis. It's like the NNT there is seven. So um, will we be doing this? Again, this is still a small trial. It was 98 patients exactly. Well, there is a much, much larger abatacep trial that's currently in the works that we'll be seeing in the next year or two called the ARIPA study that will either confirm or not confirm the study. Another big buzz came from another big study. This was called the earlier trial. 236 patients with, um, again, preclinical RA are randomized to receive either placebo or um, methotrexate. Everybody gets an IM corticosteroid at the outside. Methotrexate is um, titrated up to a max of 25 milligrams per week for one year. And then they follow them for a year off of methotrexate or the placebo. Uh, And again, this was double-blind. And and what happened was there was an initial clear-cut benefit in the methotrexate-treated group. But as far as the primary endpoint of developing RA, at the end of two two years, there was no difference, meaning the RA um, patients, the the, the methotrexate-treated patients caught up in their development of RA. But in their sub-analyses where they showed you what happened to uh, MRI inflammation or hack score, or individual parameters, the line stayed separate. And the question is, is that evidence that methotrexate can prevent or lessen the progression to RA? A lot of rheumatologists who viewed this data, viewed this as a positive study, are now going to go back and use this in their patients. I think it's premature. It's 236 patients. Um... The data looks a lot like the old PROMPT study, which also had the same negative outcome at two years. So again, the initial benefit of methotrexate was seen only in ACPA patients, not in seronegative patients, only in high-risk patients, not in low-risk. But I don't know what high-risk and low-risk is because they didn't define it, not in their presentation, not in their abstract. So it remains to be seen whether this is going to impact study, but it certainly impacts the discussion of what we should be doing. I think we're getting closer to the view that we might need to treat some of these people who have arthralgias and uh, are family have a family history of RA, and they come in either with an elevated CRP or MR or ultrasound evidence of tenosynovitis and a few tender joints, but no swollen joints. Mm, I'm going to think about it. At this point, I'm still treating what I see. I'm not riding a DMARD until I see swollen joints. And a lot of my colleagues believe that, but there are a lot of my friends and colleagues also believe, no, I think I'm going to use methotrexate. I'd be interested in hearing what you think. The other novel study that came out of the study was the Sapphire or Sapphire study, S-A-P-H-Y-R. Either they can't spell or it's a bad acronym. It means cerilumab in PMR. This is a novel study, abstract, late-breaking abstract, 0006. It's like the secret agent 006. Um, Again, this is a phase three randomized study of 280 patients who have refractory disease and they're taking steroids. And um, they recruited these patients, unfortunately, during COVID. They were supposed to recruit 280. They only recruited 118, but didn't matter. In the end, at week 52, um, they, they... met their primary endpoint, which was sustained remission, meaning uh, achieving remission between week 12 and week 52. Uh, again, I think that the data was impressive. Uh, the patients who continued, who were on Mab had less overall flares than those on placebo, 45 versus 67, um, significantly less glu- glucocorticoids and they got the map, 77. They had an aggressive 14-week steroid withdrawal here, which was, I think, a real plus in the study. So those on the IL-6 inhibitor had less exposure to steroids, 777 milligrams versus 2,000 milligrams, um, showing a clear-cut steroids-bearing effect. There was a side effect of neutropenia seen in 15%, only 20% of those needing to go uh, stop the drug because of the neutropenia. This, uh, this got a lot of buzz. Um, I like a study um, about antimalarials in patients who are on biologic DMART or targeted synthetics. This abstract poster 0242. 2. 354 patients were taking antimalarials out of a total of 1,300 RA patients who were on those other drugs. And if you were on an antimalarial compared to not being on antimalarial, you had significantly less adverse events, Signific- significantly less serious adverse events. Significantly less serious infectious events, significantly less liver adverse events, and a trend towards lower lipids and lower glucose levels, well-known benefits of hydroxychloroquine. What wasn't significant was less cardiovascular events, but remember, these people are already taking um, either a targeted synthetic, a JAK inhibitor, or a biologic, which theoretically- should be lowering their cardiovascular risk already, so not much more to be gained. But again, this makes that that throwaway you know uh, generic drug the anti-malarial out to be a superstar in our arsenal of managing patients, not just in lupus but also in RA. And my favorite, as far as I think the most um, interesting and most discussed paper was presented by uh, Dr. Pooja Khanna uh, from Birmingham, abstract OP0179, topical bicarbonate lessens acute gout attacks. Are you kidding me? So they enrolled over 400 patients in a phase 2A prospective double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and they waited for those people to develop gout. 98 developed acute gout, and at that point, everybody was, received colchicine, in a standard acute gout regimen, and half the group got a placebo cream to rub on the affected joint. The other half got transdermal sodium bicarb. Uh, And guess what? Those who got transdermal topical sodium bicarb had a better response, 95% versus 79%. They had a faster time to resolution They had more people uh, showing greater improvement over uh, seven days. Uh, Again, how this works is not known. It was postulated that it might lower intra-articular pH and allowing for less um, crystal formation. That seems a bit goofy to me. But nonetheless, uh, it's cheap. It's easy. There is actually a commercial product that does this. Um, This got a lot of buzz. This kind of blew up on Twitter, I must say. I'll throw in a few honorable mentions. My favorite stuff, serious flares cause serious, um, serious infections cause serious flares in lupus patients. A study of 184 patients, fairly well controlled, follow, followed for six years. If you had a minor infection or a serious infection, you had a twofold increase in a lupus flare. But if it was a serious infectious event, a hospitalizable infection, it increased the rate of serious lupus flares sevenfold. I thought that was interesting. The new tick two inhibitor to now being studied not just in psoriasis psoriatic arthritis, but in lupus. And in a in a phase two study, um, this is late breaking abstract 004, uh, it was studied in patients where lupus is called the Paisley study, 363 lupus patients, and the SRI4 responses were um, at what was it, at 48 weeks was 34% in placebo and 58% on three milligrams BID. No new surprises as far as side effects. Um, Double stranded DNA levels dropped, C4 levels rose, but not much else seen. It looked like there was mostly skin and joint improvement in this trial. Uh, anyway, I think that's a real plus. Two studies with bimekizumab: the B optimal study done in DMARD NIE PSA patients, and the B complete study done in TNF IR um, PSA patients, both showing that it works. Um, I think that we're going to see bimikizumab get FDA approved in the next several months. I wouldn't be surprised, given all the positive data that we've reported here recently on RoomNow. I hope that you followed us. Um, again, kudos to the RoomNow faculty. Um, uh, Yuz Yusuf, orly um, name, uh, Rachel Tate, Catherine Dow, Anthony Chan, um, Eric Dine, Richard Conway, Janet Pope, Jeff Sparks, um, myself, and I'm forgetting a few, um, and shame on me for that, um, but they did a fabulous job. Uh, you should follow them on Twitter if you want to know what's going on in rheumatology. Tune in next week. We'll see you then for another podcast. Bye-bye.